You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. We're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And what I'm going to do uh, this morning, I want to talk a little bit about the generous life and what it means to share the gift. If you remember the last several weeks, we've been in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 12 and 13. And in those passages, we talked about the gifts of the Spirit and how God begins to work in the church and how each one of you as a member of the church have a gift to contribute to the body. And we talked about love last week and how that's sort of the the, the high watermark of all that we do. and so in this series, as we're talking about what it means uh, to be uh, church members, generous church members, but, but also membership, thinking about all those things, we come to this place where we begin to really look into what it looks like when we're plugged into a church and how God wants us to give and be generous with our lives. And really, that's the focal point of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. These are two of the best stewardship passages in all of the Bible, and they really help us understand how how to apply the truth of of God, how to live out the gospel. So if you will, stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock of God's word. And what I'm going to do, even though we're covering down to verse 15, for time's sake, I'm just going to go to verse 9. And then later on, I'll, I'll touch on some of those verses in 10 to 15. But you'll get the gist of the story here and what Paul's dealing with and why he's writing these words. Notice he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, verse 6, we urge Titus that he had started, uh, that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, And in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's pray. God, we ask that these words will uh, grab hold of our heart. Thank you for this word that you spoke through Paul to a people long gone uh, from this earth, 2,000 years ago. And yet these themes are, are so needful and necessary for your people today. Help us hear the word of the Lord and help us to discern, to discover, and to display the generous life. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of our favorite passages, right? John 3.16 begins with these nine words. For God so loved the world that he gave. 
Now, you know the rest of that verse, and we're going to come back to it at the end of our time together here today. But I want you to think about those opening words of John 3.16 and how they are relevant for our passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Notice in the, the, the first half of John 3.16, you have three key concepts. First, obviously, you have God. When we are talking about the gospel, we need to understand that the gospel begins with God. The next key term there is love. The gospel is about a God who loves us. But what does that mean? We can, we can say that we, we love a lot of things. But if you'll notice, that passage also reminds us that God, he loves, but he gives A key, key thought for us here today is to see the connection that the gospel is about God, his love, and his gift. And his gift is nothing less than Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. We know this, but we need to realize that today God is asking us to think about how the gospel is applied in our lives. You see, your eternal salvation is the direct result of God's generosity. God was generous enough to offer you the hope of salvation through Christ, that you have the gospel, that you have a path, a hope uh, for heaven and forgiveness is an amazing gift from God. Our Lord has said, to whom much is given, much is required. And, And the point I'm trying to make with you this morning is you've been given the best gift. If you receive the gospel, there is no better gift in all the world that God has given you. And it is the model for the generous life. Now this passage is about an offering. It's about collecting money. If you noticed, Paul is encouraging the Corinthian Christians to give to the needs of the saints of Jerusalem. And he uses as an illustration, actually he uses two illustrations as I'm going to show you, but one illustration he uses is of the Macedonians. And the other is he uses the illustration of Christ. But in both instances, what he's trying to do is he's trying to argue for those who know the gospel are called to be generous in how they live, how they go about their their lives. Now, I'll say this, having pastored churches for a long, long time now, when the church or the pastor starts talking about money, collecting money in particular, things get weird. They just do. Um, This is not one of my favorite things. I learned a long time ago that I didn't want to be the president of a university because basically what they do is they go around and beg for money. That's what you do if you are a president of a university trying to build an endowment. I would not want to do that, okay? And and I I, I don't want you to think that that's what I'm doing with this this sermon or even the next few sermons from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. This is not a fundraising ploy, but what it is, it is a challenge to you and to me and to all of our hearts to think about what it means to be generous. We need to have this spirit. If God is generous in giving the gospel, then we need to be thinking about how that reflects in our lives. Where can people see in our lives that generosity that God gave us? We need to reflect Christ. We need to always be following Christ. And when you think about that, you think about morally, you know, doing right and not doing wrong. But Jesus was the greatest giver of all. And then we don't have generous hearts. There's a disconnect there. 
And I'm hoping that we can reconnect with this concept of generosity. Now, Paul, it is so funny. Look at verse 8 with me. Paul, would you not agree, if you've read Paul's letters, he's a pretty straightforward bloke. He's a, he's a pretty um, take-it-or-leave-it kind of guy. But even he, when he's talking about collecting an offering, verse 8 he says, I say this not as a command. Well, that's interesting to me. That Paul, who's pretty used to commanding people in his letters, is saying, you know, I'm not commanding this. And then in verse 10, he says, I give my judgment. And that word judgment can also mean opinion. Um, Paul realizes here that giving cannot be forced. But I think he brings it up because he knows it can't be neglected either. It's important for God's people to think on these things. And, and hear me out. We cannot, as your leaders of the church, ever force you into anything like this. I mean, we can't, there's no way. If you're going to give, it has to be from your heart. Paul knows that. That's why he deals with this situation delicately. And and I want to too. But I just, I'm not going to be apologetic. I'm just not for asking you to consider generosity. I think that I would be doing a great disservice to the word of God and I would be doing a great disservice to the people of God if I didn't bring these truths out. God is serious about giving. And to neglect the subject of Christian giving is to neglect the Savior who made it possible for us to be called Christian. And so here in this passage, we see Paul uh, sort of trying to reignite a fire Um, in the Corinthian heart as it relates to collecting an offering for the hurting saints of Jerusalem. And there are three basic points that if you want to follow along with us today that we're going to see. First, we're going to see how generosity opens hearts and hands. So hearts and hands to need. The second point we're going to see in the passage is how generosity um, helps foster a cooperative spirit. And another word for that phrase, cooperative spirit, would be unity. How generosity builds unity in the church. And then finally, we're going to see how generosity is most clearly expressed in the love in action that is in Christ Jesus. So in verses 1 through 5, we see the generous life and that it is about open hearts and hands. Now I'll say this, I have noticed in my life Um, and also in my own heart, that often grace grows in the most unlikely places. When I think about what God did in my heart, I know that there was, uh, it was a, um, an inhospitable place for the seed of the gospel. When you look out, I I know Wendy shared the story earlier about the man from Ukraine who was an orphan, so he didn't have family. He had a physical deformity and he was from a people group in Ukraine that is despised. I don't know that she said it as, as, uh, forcefully in the second service as she did in the first service, but in the first service when it was very clear that this person would have been the lowest of the low uh, without exception. So most people, if you were a Ukrainian national, you would look at this person who came to know Christ and you would say, that's the least likely place for God's grace to grow. And yet it did. And so throughout the history of the church, we see that God's grace grows in places that aren't always predictable. Many times it's not predictable at all. Now, the reason I bring this up is, is because Paul's talking to the Corinthians and they were a church that had a lot of abundance. They were blessed. They lived in a part of the world that was rich 
and affluent. And I want to show you a map here just to give you an idea. And it's hard to see this on a map, but you see Corinth down there at the bottom, and you'll notice that, that near it is, is a lot of green. And if you look at it, um, you see that it's also really close to the blue parts, which is, which is the ocean. And there's that little stretch of land there. They had a place where they lived, where they had abundance of food, and they also had an abundance of commerce. So they were a very wealthy church. Now look up at the top of the screen and you'll see Macedonia. Macedonia, you'll see that it's more landlocked. You'll notice that it's really brown in this, in this photo here, this, this image, um, showing that it's mountainous and it's not very fertile. So it had none of the advantages that Corinth had. So even in this map, you're going to be able to see that there was quite a difference in terms of the topography, in terms of like the socioeconomic reality on the ground. And if you look over there to the right, uh, your right, you'll see the, the, the name Philippi. Now, um, the first service didn't do a real good job at this. Let's see if you guys can do it. If you've ever studied the book of Philippians, right? Okay, so church, the church in Philippi is where Paul is writing to. If you had to give me one word to describe the book of Philippians, what word would it be? Anybody? Joy or rejoice. There it is. Yes. Randy, did you say that? Okay, all right. Me and Ross, okay. Well, they both, since they're pastors and deacons, should have known that. Okay, and the rest of us, we, we obviously need to preach through Philippians next. But let me just say this, Philippians, and this is one of those things where you start connecting things the more you read your Bible. The book of Philippians, where Paul is so happy with the church, where he is just filled with joy, his heart is filled with joy because those people in Philippi were filled with joy, that's Macedonia. The church that seemed to be the happiest church had the least going for it. And the church that had the most resources, that from the outside looking in, should have been the most joyous church of all, we know from reading First and Second Corinthians, well, they had problems. And so when we think about this element, we need to realize that the physical reality on the ground is not enough to determine really whether we have open hearts and open hands. So to put it mildly, I think Paul, if you read this passage, chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul is saying in a very subtle way, Macedonia is making you guys in Corinth look really bad. They are giving in abundance and you're not giving much at all. Now that's a pretty tough and jagged pill to swallow, but that's the reality on the ground. Look at verse two with me. I want you to see this in the text. Paul doesn't pull punches in talking about the realities. He says, for in a severe test of affliction, you might underword that word affliction, their abundance of joy now notice this, here in America, we would have a hard time connecting this, this concept. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Most people in America would not connect abundant joy with extreme poverty. 
But the Macedonians had done that. They had experienced great affliction. Well, I've already told you that they didn't have much commerce or much good farm ground. But we also know from history that the Romans had rolled through that area in generations before Paul wrote this letter. And as one historian, Livy, put it, had lacerated the country. It had been torn to pieces we also know from history and some other letters and some other, you know, elements from, from, again, the historical record that this part of the world was experiencing heavy persecution. The church was experiencing heavy persecution from the locals. The Macedonians there, they, they, they hailed back to the age of Alexander the, the Great. And so they had a really big connection with the Greek gods and all those things. And so they didn't like this Christianity coming in and doing away with their gods. And so the Macedonian Christians, they were poor because they didn't have commerce. They, they were also in a place that had been ravaged by war and they were persecuted and yet they had joy. So why do we so often lack joy in this land of plenty? I'm just going to put it to you. I didn't say it quite this way in the first service, but I'll put it this way to you. Here in this part of the world, are we more like Macedonia or Corinth? What do we have? Well, I would say we're more like Corinth in the sense that we have abundant blessings. Uh, even anywhere in America, you're going to have to say we're, we're more like Corinth. But especially here where we live, it seems like that God has blessed a lot of folks. But have you noticed that that, that hasn't always translated into joy? I mean, in a church like ours where we have... Um, I said 23, but Randy corrected me, more like 30 missions partners around the world. We have opportunities to touch the world for Jesus. We have, every time you come to church, even if you don't like my sermon, you have something to be excited about because of what God's doing here. But I'll just tell you, there are many times when, when I get done with church, I have somebody come up and, and they're not happy about something. Now, they haven't been mean to me, and I don't want you to think that. I'm not saying that at all. But I'll have folks that just, it, it, it seems like sometimes I'm, and I'm, I'm going way back. I'm not talking about anything like recent. But ha- after 20 years of this, I've noticed that in the American church, more often than not, we come together and we find things to complain about. Now, I'm just going to drop the mic here, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to do that because they're really expensive, so don't do that. But, but, but be bad stewardship, which is kind of funny. But if we, if we think about it, when we are, are not full of joy, one of the primary culprits is there, there's a, there's an element of generosity that maybe we're missing. And I'm not accusing anybody of not giving or not tithing. I mean, this church has been a powerful giving church. We have a tremendous history of giving. But I'm just going to today and in the days to come, not just in this series, but in the days to come, Ridgecrest Baptist Church needs to be a model of generosity. And the reason why we need to be a model of generosity is because we've been given much. And to whom much is given, much is required. And if our hearts are not open, if our hands are not open. So again, the heart represents a sharing of of spiritual grace. Our hands being open is a picture of us sharing material grace. But in either instance, we need to be the people who are giving. And we're giving with joy. Go back to the Gospels and hear again the story. Read later today, Luke 21, verses 1 through 4, the story of the widow's might. You see, the the power of that gift 
was not in the amount of the money given, but it was a beautiful picture of faith. The willingness to give literally your last nickel, your last penny for the glory of God and for the kingdom. Jesus highlights the generous spirit. That's what he does with the widow's might, but that's what he does on the cross. He illustrates for us a generous spirit. True generosity flows from a heart that is wide open to what God wants. And I believe that when the will to give and to be generous, like the widow's might story tells us, it is then that we are able to give generously. And it's not about the the number of zeros uh, in the check. It's not about how big the check is. It's about your heart. This week, and I want to invite any of you who have time on Thursday mornings at 8 o'clock in the little prayer chapel right back here, we meet. And we were praying together. It was about five of us this last Thursday. And, and I, I noticed I started to do it as I was praying. I began to, as I was praying, do this. My foot was doing this. And God put in my mind this image. As, as I was stomping my foot, I saw the image of a heart. A heart beating. And God reminded me that here when we gather in this place for worship, this is the heartbeat of the people of God. God has brought us here to praise his name, to hear his word, and to give us life. And just as the heart pumps blood to to the body through all the veins and capillaries, I saw a vision in my head of God just firing up this church and pumping out of this place, this heart, the heart of worship, pumping us out into the hallways and into the classrooms and into the choir loft, taking the life-giving spirit and flow of Christ, the generosity of God flowing from this place as we worship him, as we bow before him, as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we need to take that wonderful joy that we get in worship and we need to fill this building with it. And then we need to fill this city with it. And then we need to get on an airplane with a passport which I recommend, and take it to the world because that's what we do. And it all starts with the heartbeat in this room. I am excited about the future. And and that excitement has very little to do with, with buildings or renovations or parking lots. It has to do with the power of the Holy Spirit that is in this place. And I'm going to ask God to give all of us this passion and this joy for generosity where it opens our hearts and opens our lives to the will of God. You see, in Macedonia, it wasn't about the economic situation. That was a secondary concern. The Macedonian Christians were kingdom people. They wanted to see the kingdom grow. And that was their driving passion. And let that be our driving passion. Let's ask God to show us what what we need to give for the glory of God. Where we say, take what I have and bless it, Lord. That needs to be our mantra. Dear friends, we will not give generously until our hearts are firmly focused on God's kingdom. But when we open our hearts to God's will, whatever we have in our hands will be blessed beyond our dreams. But the question I have for you is, is your heart open to what God is leading you to do? Are your hands open? What does the generosity look like in your life? 
I know that not everybody in the church, uh, there are yeses and noes with every vote. Not everybody's on the same page when it comes to the renovation. And I've said it again and again. I completely respect that. But let me throw a challenge out to you. If you were to tell me, Pastor, I love my church, but my conscience just doesn't feel like this is the right choice. I'll say to you, I respect your conscience, but I'm going to give you a challenge. You tell me about conscience, I'll give you a challenge. If you're not going to give generously uh, to that project, I want you to double your Lottie Moon offering. I want you to seriously consider uh, filling out one of these cards and helping orphan ministry. If you're going to say no on this, then I believe God's telling you to say yes on something else. And I think, listen, I think this is a good thing. The more I've thought about it, this is a beautiful thing. Because Ridgecrest Baptist Church, the resources that are here, we don't have to decide whether we just do one thing or another. It's not an either or. It's a both and. We need to be serious about giving and being generous to all the things that God lays on our heart. And I want to challenge you today. If, if what's been going on the last couple of weeks has discouraged you, please hear my heart. That was never the intent. But I'm hoping that this encourages you and you're hearing me you're hearing your pastor say I totally get it if you don't want to give to this one thing but man this is a great opportunity because we have a $90,000 go for Lottie Moon let's do $100,000 let's do $100,000 let's do $10,000 more let's do 10% more than what our goal is let's go north on, of, of $100,000 to Lottie Moon because when we give to Lottie Moon we can't say that any of that stays here that's us giving money that goes away Let's do that. Let's be faithful. Let's be generous because the model of generosity is Jesus. And at any time, if we say, nope, 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 I'm not going to give. Boy, isn't it good that Jesus didn't have that attitude? You better think about it. I got to think about that. When I'm closing my fist and saying, no, I have to remember that Jesus said yes. And that nail is what went in that open hand. We have to realize that generosity is not just, or stewardship, not just something that we need to think about or, or preach about when, when we're raising funds. We need to be generous all the time. One of the reasons we need to be is because it fosters a cooperative spirit. Now we see this in verses 6 through 8 and verses 10 through 15. Now, just so you will recall... Paul has already had this conversation before. Now, if you are a parent in this room or if you've, if you've ever worked in a church, you know that you can tell uh, your, your children and you can tell even um, your church something one, two, ten times. It can be on the screen. We can say it in the announcements. And then somebody will say, I never heard anything about this. Um, where did that come from? So, so clearly, um, the, the problems that were in the Corinthian church are still in the church today. So Paul had already talked about this need in Jerusalem. So a year before, he had come to them and said, we need uh, generosity for our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Now, we know this because 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4, mention it. And um, we also know from uh, Acts chapter 20 that Paul would have been in the region of Macedonia and Greece at about this time. And so we can kind of put all the things together. But ultimately, look at verse 6. He says in verse 6 that Titus was to help the Corinthians complete among them this act of grace. So you're completing something that had already been started. That's the gist of it. Look at verses 10 and 11. 
He says, this benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it well. Now bring all this up to you because the church had been made, the church had been made aware of a need, but they had not met the need. So one of the, the real dangerous things that happens in a church is, is that needs are, are brought to the forefront, but those needs never get met. When a church is healthy with open hearts and open hands, when real need is brought before the body, that need is taken care of. Now, clearly, the Macedonians had already done their thing. They were challenged, and they immediately gave. They didn't say, well, let's wait and see see how the end of the quarter business report is. Let's make sure that we have excess in the bank, and then we'll let go of a little bit more money. The Macedonians didn't have anything in the bank. They gave straight out of their pockets. Maybe some of them were given the money for their own food. They gave. Now the Corinthians in verse 7 kind of get a sideways hit from Paul. He acknowledges that the Corinthians excel in everything. Take a look at verse 7. In faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness. But notice this, as he's telling them this, now remember, they thought they were great. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, they were the church that was most gifted, but they also had a lot of problems. But notice he says that it's the act of grace, or otherwise we could call it generosity, that they're not doing so well with. So he says, hey, Corinthian church, you guys are all that in a bag of chips, except... When it comes to generosity and the Macedonians are making you look bad. That's what he says. Now for a guy who's not trying to offend, that's pretty strong language. And and Paul's not being mean. Verse 7, take a look at verse 7. I want you to see this. At the very end of verse 7 he says, See that our, uh, he speaks of, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So before he hits them with the, hey, you need to be generous. He says, you know, I'm saying this to you because I love you. Now look down in verse 10. He speaks of in verse 10 how this benefits you. See that? And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. Now I don't think he means just my judgment benefits you, but generosity benefits the body. When we as individual Christians, we as as a body of Christ are giving, I think that we get spiritual blessings for that. How many times have you, or perhaps you've heard a testimony of someone who stepped out in faith and they were generous and then God blessed that individual. Now this isn't prosperity preaching. This is just how God works. He takes faithful people giving faithful gifts and shows them that he's in charge. Kind of like what God did for me just reminded me that that prayer works, that God answers prayers and God shows himself to be powerful. We know that Malachi, the book of Malachi says, you know, God says, test me, see. So we are, we, we know in scripture that generosity is one of those ways that we can really see God work in our lives. But here's the bottom line. If you never take the opportunity to give, you will miss a tremendous opportunity to grow. If we're not giving, then I'll tell you, it's very likely we're not growing. Giving stretches us. I think money is one of the primary idols of our day. And one of the only ways that we can defeat that idol is to learn Christian generosity. By being good stewards in every way, that's how we display genuine love. 
The Corinthians have the resources. Verse 11 and 12 show us this. They'd had a year to do something about it. Verse 10 shows us this. And now Paul says in verses 13 through 15, it's time to get it done. To cooperate with the other churches that have already partnered in Macedonia to bring relief to the saints of Jerusalem. Paul says in verse 14, he speaks of fairness. He's telling the Corinthians, it's only right that you guys sacrifice like the Macedonians. He is really showing us a clear vision of cooperative ministry. We need to understand that the kingdom is always bigger than just a church. You know, I serve in the Missouri Baptist Convention because I believe that churches ought to come together and cooperate. Ridgecrest is big enough that it can sort of operate on its own. We have a great missions uh, uh, team and we have a lot of missionary work going on in the United States and around the world. We could be very independent, but you know, There's something special about joining arms with your brothers and sisters in Christ. To take those churches like Macedonia and putting your your arms around them and saying, you guys might not have the ability to, to, to send out 30 different teams, but come with us. Use your gifts alongside of us. Let us help you. You help us. That's what cooperative ministry does. It helps us join with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It helps us to become disciple makers in the world. Cooperative ministry. And what happens is the people we touch, we may never see them. The the money we give and the generosity we display here in Springfield, we may never see the results, but I want to tell you, God sees the results and he will bless those efforts. The final verse we want to look at is verse nine. And this is the bottom line of the bottom line. And that is uh, the love and action that we see in Christ. Now, a minute ago, I read to you, John 3, 16, and, and the last part of that is that his only begotten son, that's what God gave, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, the Macedonians are a great example of giving. The Corinthians provide a warning about being stingy in our giving. But Christ shows us that giving is nothing less than love in action. God sent his son And Jesus willingly laid down his life. Look at the language of verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich, but for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus entered into this world so that we could be saved from our sins. If it was not for that great gift, if he was not born of the Virgin Mary, we could not be saved. Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 and following let us know that Christ emptied himself into human form and that literally he became one of us so that we could be saved. He steps down out of heaven for our sake. One cannot fathom what Christ gave up to come down. One cannot imagine how beautiful this picture is. And there's a mystery here. No one fully understands that. Even that passage is somewhat controversial. But here's the bottom line. Whether we see in Philippians 2 or here, we really see that God's love was so radical that he took on flesh and dwelt among us. However, theologically, you want to describe that, it's fine with me. But at the end of the day, what we need to realize is, is that he became awfully poor so that you could know the amazing riches of heaven. And I wonder how many of you, even if you have all the things the world can offer you, what do you have if you have not Christ? 
If your spirit is poor, if you're lacking in the love of Jesus, then you're missing the most important thing of all. The grace of Jesus is what you have to receive this morning. And I believe verse 9 is begging you to know the grace of God, to surrender your sinful life and receive forgiveness in his name. But I know that many of you are believers in this room. And I want to revisit what I said a moment ago. And I mean this with all my heart. If you do not feel led to give in one area, that's fine. But don't let that staunch your generosity. An opportunity is being open to you. Maybe even today as you see these cards that are here in the altar. If you are convicted, if, if maybe the last few weeks because of the discussion we've had as a church, maybe, and, and I know this is possible, that, that it makes you kind of bitter and you think, well, I don't know if I want to give. And, and, and I understand that, but I'm not asking you to give to something that your heart's not in. I'm asking you to give generously to the Lord for these other ministries, for, for your tithe and all those things. Don't let, don't let these things get between us or to get between you and God. Anytime we pull away and say no to generosity, that means we, we need to ask some hard questions of ourselves. It just does. And I, I want to just share that with you today, that God would begin to just break down our hearts and, and help us to be generous, not for the sake of a program or anything else, but just for the sake of the one who became poor for us. That's, I think that's an awesome thing to consider. And our generosity this morning, as we think about moving forward, as we think about what God has in store for our church, I'm excited for Ridgecrest Baptist Church because I know that you all love the word and I know we love Christ and I believe that the one who saved us with all that generosity, I'm just thinking about what God could do through this congregation in the years to come. How many souls, Randy, on the other side of the world are we going to see come to know Jesus? How many of our neighbors are going to come to see Jesus? I am so excited to see that. I won't know the full number till heaven, but let's just be faithful. Let's be generous. Let's be like Christ and let's let God do something amazing. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.